Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. Well, I have a special guest back on the show today. We just finished recording an episode and uh, we thought we would talk about the elections that are available to you as a real estate investor that the tax code provides to help reduce, minimize, and potentially eliminate your taxes. And uh, they're referred to as elections. So I have Chris Picuro back on the show with yes. me here. Uh, welcome back, Chris. It's awesome to be back again. I'm excited. So just a quick little intro for you. Chris is the executive officer and the co-founder of Integrated Financial Group, and they are a nationally based financial firm, and they strive to provide sound financial services to individuals, small and medium-sized businesses. Chris, I really enjoyed my conversation with you on the last recording we just did about taxes, and it just makes me realize, and it's a reminder of how complex it could be and how deep it goes and the importance of having a professional tax advisor or CPA on your team to help you identify all those tax deductions and ways to minimize, reduce, and eliminate taxes. And on the last episode that we just recorded, you had mentioned some elections, and I got thinking, wow, there's quite a few elections. And then you and I identified five in particular that I think are well worth talking about. And I strongly believe a lot of investors are not familiar with all five of these. And so this has become the topic of this episode, and that is these five elections that you can take as a real estate investor. So before we dive into that, just briefly, because this episode is going to come out shortly after the first one, just give us a quick overview of who you are and what your firm does. Well, I am, again, honored to be on the show. As you know, I'm a listener, and I, I uh, enjoy listening uh, listening to, to a lot of your episodes and a lot of your guests. And I am uh, with Integrated CPA Group. I've been in practice for 18 years, and we what we do is we legally and ethically reduce the amount of taxes our clients pay over their lifetime. And our clients consist of entrepreneurs, real estate investors, and highly taxed households. Uh, and we do that using a membership-based subscription model. And uh, so we were very proactive, focusing on tax planning and strategy. Obviously, there's a compliance component to our work, including tax returns, uh, maybe some light bookkeeping, payroll processing. But the main focus is tax planning and strategy. And um, just like this episode, there are so many tools available uh, that we want to take advantage of. And one of the things we want to consider on a tax return in general are the things that are not numbers on your return. And that's so important when it comes to what we're gonna talk about today are tax elections. Even what your uh, sector industry code is on your tax return is important. What you list as your occupation can be important. So for real estate investors, there are five uh, special elections. Some of the elections do pertain to other industries, but five specifically for real estate investors that I think are important that we talk about and hopefully the listeners, if they think one might apply to them, could either take advantage of the election and, uh, and or at least consult with their CPA or tax advisor about it. So before we dive into those five, you know, we as real estate investors, we talk about cash flow all the time. You know, the importance of cash flow. How do we get to cash flow? How do we improve and increase our cash flow? But you talk a lot about tax flow. And I thought that was a very interesting term. Just talk about the difference between cash flow and tax flow, because the way you described it was 
very um, eye-opening and it makes you think about real estate in a different way. So you're looking at it not just from one angle about cash flow, but you're looking at it from another angle from the tax side of it. Well, yeah, so we've come up with a concept of obviously everyone's aware of cash flow, but tax flow is a component of your cash flow. And sometimes, uh, sometimes they work inversely, sometimes they work together. Uh, and what we know is that every tax planning opportunity in every situation provides a tax flow result. Some could be negative, some could be positive, some could be a, a result of a great planning, some could be accidental luck. But what we do know is that, as I said from the beginning, we're trying to reduce the taxes you pay in your lifetime. So it doesn't always mean take every deduction today, but we also have to consider that once a tax is paid, essentially it's gone. It's like putting money into a black hole and you're never gonna see it again. Obviously there are rare exceptions with the CARES Act where you can, where you can now take net operating losses and roll them back. But for the most part, that, let's just consider that tax money is gone. And so we have to consider the tax flow as part of it. And there are some things there are some tax strategies um, that actually have a positive cash flow and don't cost you anything in tax flow, meaning it, it could reduce your tax liability while increasing the cash in your pocket. So those are the concepts. And what I could do is as we talk through these elections, I'll kind of apply the, that concept to each one. So when I think about elections, I think about a square checkbox on the tax <laughs> form <laughs> that you just mm -hmm. put your pencil or pen on and you just you know, tick the box. How do you describe or define what an election is? Because I oversimplify things sometimes, and that's the way I look at elections. Well, I'm glad you simplify things because smart people take complicated things and make them easy. So <laughs> all an election is, is it's a statement that you're attaching to your tax return, that you are taking a position on some type of activity or transactions on your tax return that's either allowed by the Internal Revenue Code, and many of them are safe harbor elections. What that means, I'll give you an example that everyone can, can understand. There's a safe harbor for business mileage of let's call it 58 and a half cents or whatever it is per mile. Or if you have a business vehicle, you can deduct the actual expenses, including depreciation and insurance, gas, and you have to allocate the business use versus personal use. And the federal government basically has said, we don't want to screw around with this. We're just going to give you a very generous 58 and a half cent or whatever it is, whenever you're listening to it, whatever it is that year deduction for every mile you drive. And we know for the most part, if the average vehicle gets 20 cents per gallon, and even if gas prices are $4 a gallon, your cost is 20 cents a gallon and you're getting a 58% deduction. So you're really electing to use a standard mileage deduction. There's not a formal election that gets attached to your tax return, but that's an example of a, a tax election. The ones we're going to talk about have to get attached to your tax return. Same with home office. There's a simplified home office deduction and a actual home office deduction. So when the IRS doesn't want to go through the cost benefit of enforcing something, they create a safe harbor for us to say, if this client or taxpayer qualifies under these rules, no questions asked, they get that tax benefit. So having said that, if you take an election like you're talking about, are you leaving money on the table because you're getting less of a deduction as if you had fully itemized it and gone through the longer process of calculating what that deduction would have been? We have real, we've never taken a deduction that has a negative impact. So you're not typically the safe harbor is something that is pro taxpayer in general. Because again, it's the cost benefit of figuring out 
business miles or home office. I mean, an auditor doesn't want to weed through your utility bills, right? They just say you're getting $5 per square foot. Sometimes it might be better for you to take the, um, the actual home office deduction. The only time an election would reduce the amount of deduction that you take would be as if you elect out of what's called bonus depreciation on new assets that are purchased. But we would do that because we feel that you are in a really low, you have no real mark tax to pay this year and we wanna push those deductions to the future. So the elections, but I guess to simplify it, are always gonna be pro taxpayer. Okay. All right, let's talk about lowering our taxes. So let's talk about these five elections. And yes. uh, the first one is one that got me really excited because to me, it's a big deal. It's a big haircut on your tax bill if, if you can qualify for it or if it applies to you. And that is uh, what you know is technically referred to as the 199A, but in English, it's really the rental real estate safe harbor election. And this is a potential 20% tax savings. So explain this and how it works. Right. So a lot of us know about uh, tax, the Tax Reform Act, um, what we call it, went effective 2018. Part of that act was that the corporate tax rate went to 21%. And so everyone does, on C corporations, and to prevent everyone from just becoming a C corp, to balance this, the government said, okay, if you're not a C corp, if you're, if you're an S corp or just not a C corp, let's put it that way, we're going to give you an additional 20% federal deduction based on your net income. Now there are, there are phase outs and there are limitations, but just let's work with that number. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of our clients um, have net income from the rental property. Even after we deduct their depreciation deduction, we're finding this a lot in our short-term rental markets or clients that don't have mortgages on their property. So if that's the case, if they're showing net profit from the rental activities, there's an opportunity to take another 20% deduction on top of all of their deductions they already have for insurance, real estate taxes, management fees. But the question became, is owning a rental property qualified business income? Is that a business or is it not? So the, IR, the, the government created a safe harbor, the IRS created a safe harbor that said, okay, you're gonna qualify for the 20% QBI qualified business income deduction, as long as you do two things. One, you maintain a separate books and records for your rental enterprise. They didn't say you have to use QuickBooks. They didn't say you had to use an Excel spreadsheet. They just said, have separate books and records. So it could be as little as have a separate bank account. Two, perform 250 or more hours of rental services each year to your portfolio. But here's the cool thing. The 250 hours of service can not only be performed by the owners of the property, but employees, agents, and independent contractors. So that includes your property management team, your plumbers, your everything um your real estate agents so it's pretty easy to hit that 250 hour mark for the year if you do there you just sign a special statement and you make that election and now you have an additional 20 percent federal tax deduction so that's probably not that difficult to qualify for the only question or concern that popped in my head is how do you either document or prove the 250 hours over mm -hmm. the course of a year because it's hard to track other people's time they're not logging it and it might be unreasonable for you to ask them to log it for you. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you ever had to prove it was 250 hours, how do you do that? Yeah. I mean that, so I don't know of any case that has gone through the audit process 
that, that they've tested it. So you're, yes, you're supposed to keep a record. Obviously, um, if you have a calendar and you're doing meetings, that's going to be, that'll all be in there. Your emails, your correspondence will be in there. The property manager, you know, it, 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 I guess I'm looking at this. If I had a, a client that was examined by the IRS and they owned five properties that were professionally managed, what I would do is I would ask the property management company to provide some type of letter with, please tell me what the average time to manage a property is. If it's an hour a, a month, you know, and you have five properties, that's that's five times, that's 60 hours. I think it's more than an hour, but let, let's just use those examples. So what's included, I mean, is advertising for rent or lease, negotiating, executing leases, qualifying tenant applications, rent collections, operations. So it's a pretty broad brush. So, I mean, to say that you put five hours a week between yourself and your property management team into an activity is pretty easy to right. find. It's an exciting election. And I think everybody listening to this should look into it. It's, you know, 199A, it's a 20% reduction in your taxable income on businesses and your real estate business. So if you're running multiple businesses, you're self-employed, as long as it's not a C-Corp, you know, this may apply to you. Exactly. Because the C-Corp tax return, the, I mean, the C-Corp tax rates went down to the flat 21%. So that yeah. 199A was really to balance that out. I love it. Okay, mm -hmm. cool. All right. So unless you have anything else to add to that, we'll move on to that second election of the five yes. elections that I think all real estate investors really need to know about. And that is the de minimis safe harbor election. Now, there's a word that you don't use every day. Oh, gosh. I know we're <laughs> kidding around that every time I put that in an email, I get the spell check making it making it red. But um, yeah, so what <laughs> what this is, is it's it's um, it's part of the uh, the tax code or regulations that, that says Landlords or any business owner, we use this election for business owners, any can deduct up to $2,500 of the cost of any tangible property used in their trade or business. And that deduction limit is on the quote unquote invoice level. So that could mean an appliance. Let's say you buy, I hope, I don't know, you're probably not buying a $2,000 refrigerator for your rental property, but maybe let's say you did. You would typically have to deduct that refrigerator over a five or seven year period, but now you could just make a de minimis safe harbor election and deduct it immediately. The advantage of this is that it's it's helping your, one, you're laying out cash flow, but it's reducing your tax flow because you're getting an immediate deduction for those expenses. It also is not increasing the basis of your property and it allows you to not have to pay depreciation recapture if you were to sell that property on the depreciation you took from, from these expenditures. So. What the IRS is really saying is that, look, any improvements you make under $2,500, just deduct them. We don't want to tangle with your fixed asset schedules. It, you know, just, just take the deduction and make the election. For some taxpayers, the limit's $5,000, but for 99% of the taxpayers, it's going to be a $2,500 de minimis safe harbor uh, election. So any, any like I said, any line item that's $2,500 or less, you can deduct immediately. I would say the, the only drawback is is that if someone's cons really concerned about financing or bankability in general, um, what I found is the underwriters are, they're going to just see, it's going to be listed as re in most asterisks, repairs and maintenance and just a number. So for some of our clients that are really concerned about that, we actually create a separate line item on their tax return that says de minimis safe harbor eligible expenses. In general, that's going to be an ad back. I'm not going to promise that because I'm not a lender, 
but again, you know, we have a practical side of our, what we're doing with the practice. So you're saying to be able to add that back to your qualifying income, if you're going for financing, you're breaking it out as a separate line item and actually calling it de minimis safe harbor uh, deduction, That's as opposed to putting it in the maintenance and repairs line item on your tax return. Exactly. For, for taxpayers yeah. that are really, really concerned about it, some of them aren't that concerned. But yes, if that's a concern they have. And I want, and, and another thing, you can use this in any business. So this would include what, computer equipment, cell phones, because technically cell phones were a capital asset. And I've looked at some depreciation schedules with a bunch of cell phones and little computers and phone systems. So, so this really helped all of us out. And that's something that you should, we pretty much make the selection on almost every tax return for business owners. Does this apply to capital expenses as well or just maintenance and repairs? It's any tangible property. So a cap it could be it could be a window. Could be you could be replacing a, you know. So this will apply to larger capital expenditures like roofs, HVAC, windows and whatnot. It could. It could if it's under the $2500 limit. So let's take a hypothetical example. What if you have, let's say, a $5,000 maintenance and repair item or a $5,000 capital expenditure, mm -hmm. and you can qualify for the $2,500? How does that work? Do you deduct the $2,500 from the $5,000? No, you can't. No, I know. You're, you're saying, no, you, you can't. You, that, that would be uh, the $5,000. You'd have to either find one of the great segue to the next, the next couple of elections. You'd have to find a way to take that deduction under the, one of the next two elections or... Worst case, if it's like a roof, you could or um, landscaping or something that could qualify as bonus depreciation, you'd still be able to deduct it all now. But yeah, if it's five thousand dollars, you wouldn't be able to get it in this particular safe harbor. So I'm assuming that if you have a year where you actually had or have no maintenance and repair expenses and no capex expenses, you're having a good year with no out-of-pocket expenses to cover. Can you still claim the safe harbor election? Uh, you could, but you really wouldn't need to uh, because you don't have any qualifying expenses. Okay. But it's pretty rare, you know, I mean, that, yeah. So you, that, in that, in, if that you had one property and that was a fact pattern, then I would not do this election. Okay. Maybe this is a dumb question, but doesn't this double up on the deduction? Because maintenance and repairs are already a deduction on your tax return, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to deduct that anyway. So when does this kick in? So it kicks in though if you have if you're if you have a capitalized asset. So repairs and maintenance are deductible, but replacing appliances is those should be before this set up for depreciation. Oh, I see. So this would apply to things that you would typically depreciate over time, not take as a, an expense 100 mm -hmm. that same year. Exactly, and there's such a low amount. It's kind oh, of got it. that, that the IRS says, just take it all now. Got it. Mm -hmm. And this is per year? It's the $2,500. There's really no limit. It's per line item. So you could have a really? $2,300 HVAC unit, a $1,200 carpet redo, where you would typically capitalize those, but you could be under the de minimis safe harbor on those and just deduct them. And that's also per year that this applies on every annual tax return? Yeah. So, it's, But it's per item, not per... So. So think right. about this per, really, per item per year. <laughs> yeah. So not twenty five hundred max. So this is going to play a big role when you're doing a uh, when you're doing a make ready or a term, right? You're not. You're typically going to have to replace some things when the tenant leaves. There are usually things that you would capitalize, and this is a great opportunity to deduct them immediately. 
Wow. Wow. I hope everybody's listening to this. Mm-hmm. And there's no recapture on this, is there? No, because it's just, it's basically repairs and maintenance deduction. We just break That's it out amazing. sometimes. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm amazed at this one. I didn't think it was that broad and deep, but that's powerful. Okay, well, that's a good segue to the next one, the routine maintenance safe harbor. Right. So sometimes, and and that's where it gets confusing, sometimes an expenditure might fall into a, so the first election we made, we were talking about is simply to get an additional tax deduction if you have a profit. The next three are a way to deduct your expenditures immediately that you otherwise would have to write off over time. All right. So the and sometimes you might have an expenditure that would meet more than one of these safe harbors. But the routine maintenance safe harbor says routine maintenance work is deductible as long as you're not creating a betterment of the property, even if it exceeds the twenty five hundred dollars. So really, and and there's a lot of gray area in this. I, I do understand. But there is no limit to the routine maintenance safe harbor. The issue becomes are you maintaining the property or are you creating a betterment? So this sounds like it falls under maintenance and repairs, what we would generally classify as maintenance and repairs, not capital expenditures, not capital improvements, not adding square footage. It's just your regular day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year maintenance and repair. Correct. So that it could be, here's an example. What if you have a $5,000 expenditure for redoing all the carpeting in an apartment building or a, you know, right. in the, or whatever in, in a, in an office complex? Well, you're over the de minimis $2,500. You should technically capitalize the carpeting, but it's considered routine maintenance. So now you can deduct it. You're not improving the carpeting. You're, you're maintaining it. If that makes sense. Yep. So what does this look like in practice? I mean, if you were to, translate this to uh, what's allowable or what you can claim? What does it look like in practice? Well, I mean, now we're a little more conservative on capitalization because we get to deduct the carpeting anyway, right? You know, because of bonus depreciation, we're going to deduct it 100%. With tax reform, this particular safe harbor isn't as valuable because even if you don't qualify for it, you're pretty much, like I said, going to get the immediate deduction. But we have to also remember there are some states that don't conform to the bonus depreciation and the immediate deduction, and it's added back to your tax. So on this this one, it really comes down to: Do you have an expenditure that you would that's over the de minimis amount that should be capitalized, but is really just maintaining the property and not bettering it or increasing the value? So. So take the de minimis safe harbor election first. That's the, your first 2500 Anything above and beyond that, you would apply to the routine maintenance safe harbor. Kind of. But so, so that de minimis safe harbor, though, the $2,500 is not the limit of the, of the deduction. It's $2,500 per item. So you could. Right. So, yeah, the, but there, there is an interplay. So that's why I'm saying yeah. a deduction could qualify under both of those. Right, right, right. Okay. Great. Um, I hope everyone's taking notes unless you're driving. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that would be a bad thing. Okay. So, um, all right. Anything else to add about routine maintenance before I go on to the next one? Um, no, I think we're good. Okay. So the next election is the uh, safe harbor for small taxpayers. Correct. First of all, let's define what a small taxpayer is because everybody feels that they're a big taxpayer regardless of how little they pay. <laughs> right. So, uh a small taxpayer is going to be someone with the with a properties 
unadjusted basis, it, the property's unadjusted basis is less than a million dollars. So pretty much think about this. If you're in general, 30,000 foot view, if your property is a million dollars or more of basis, could, doesn't necessarily mean fair market value, then you're not considered a small quote unquote taxpayer. It's going to be- You are or you're not? You're not. So a million dollars or less of unadjusted basis, you're a small taxpayer. Okay. And that's per property. That's not your portfolio. Correct. Correct. So you can have 100 properties worth 500,000 basis, cost basis, and you qualify as a small taxpayer. Correct. Okay. So what's the safe harbor here? So the safe harbor here is that any repair, maintenance, or improvements that are less than $10,000 or 2% of the unadjusted basis of the building, whatever is less, are immediately deductible. So now people are flying off the road saying, what in the heck? So let's look at the situation. Let's say you See how many a, accidents you're causing, Chris? This I know. is terrible. Well, let's look at So this one's really good with commercial property because remember commercial property is the building components 39 and a half years, not 27 and a half. But let's say you have a $600,000 commercial property and you have an $8,000 expenditure, okay? You're, you're over the de minimis safe harbor. Let's say you're bettering the property. What if it's like new awnings or new you know, signage or something, right? So $600,000, 2% of $600,000 is $12,000. So the lesser of $10,000 and $12,000, right? 2% of the unadjusted basis or $10,000 is $10,000. So I'm good. I'm up to like fourth grade now. So since your $8,000 expenditure is less than 10,000, you could deduct the $8,000 expenditure immediately instead of having to capitalize it because you didn't qualify for one of the, the other um, safe harbors to deduct it. So signage would be a good example or, or something like that. So this obviously applies to residential. What would be a, maybe a more typical example on a residential property? On residential would be, Oh man, um, I'd say an HVAC unit. You know, something like would be a, would be a good one. You know, it might be, let's say it's four thousand dollars for a brand new HVAC. Technology's better, so you're bettering the property. It's over the twenty five hundred dollars. So a four thousand dollar HVAC unit, just running some numbers. Um, as long as the adjusted basis of the property, you know, it's under the ten grand, two percent. So if the adjusted basis of the property, if the basis of the property was one hundred and fifty grand, two percent of that is three thousand. I mean, I don't know if you're putting a four thousand dollar HVAC unit in a hundred fifty thousand dollar property, but so my numbers don't might might, might not make practical right, sense. Right, of course. An HVAC unit would be a, to, a good example of that. So this is good for someone who wants to take that deduction and apply it immediately in the current tax year, as opposed to choosing to depreciate it over time, the five years, 10 years, whatever the schedule is for that asset. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So these elections seem to stack on top of each other. They kind of, they add up. It's like an, an escalating series of elections. Correct. Exactly. It's kind of like the, we, we like to use the, you know, like a cup, like if I'm trying to pour my water in that cup, that cup's full. We don't, we can't put it in there. Let's go to this one. Let's go to this one. Sure. And uh, we're trying to find a home for it. Sometimes an expenditure might qualify under multiple elections, but, but yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that leads us to the fifth and final tax election, and that's the rental grouping election. And I think this is going to apply to a lot of people listening to this. 
So what is it and how do you take advantage of it? Sure. Well, we know that, especially if you're in a single family uh, rental you know, business, uh, when we look at, let's look, take an example of that 250-hour test, right? The, the first election we talked about. There are also tests as far as um, if, when we're looking at, if you're trying to be a quali- trying to qualify as a real estate professional, the 750-hour test or the material participation test of 500 hours. Not to get, but when we're applying tests to, a, to an activity, or if we have a loss in one activity for tax purposes and a profit in another activity, we want those to be able to offset each other, or we want to be able to count our hours towards our real estate enterprise um, in aggregate. So what we do is if you have multiple properties, we make a rental grouping election, which is telling the IRS, I'm aware I have 10 properties, but for tax purposes, these properties all aggregate to one activity of being a landlord. And when you apply your tests to me, either the the passive loss, passive activity loss tests, or the activity tests, what I would call, um, you know, Pat, that we just, I just talked about, you are applying it to my activity as a whole. You're not breaking every little property down and making me prove that I have active participation or material participation in each property autonomously. So I don't see a reason where or why someone would not do this. I mean, if you have multiple properties, why would you not group them together? It it just seems like an obvious election to be taking. Right, exactly. I I would say, I can't, honestly, I can't think of one client that we don't do a rental grouping election for that has multiple properties. Right. Unless they have a profit on all their properties because the rental grouping election really helps them with, being able to deduct passive activity losses or offsetting a loss from one property and a gain on another. So if I had a client with two properties that they both had a, uh, a profit, then, you know, then I would, then I probably wouldn't make it. But I, let's say 98% of the time we're, it's, it's part of our whole, it's actually part of our internal control process when preparing tax returns. Like does someone have multiple properties? Make sure you check yourself, make sure you look, make sure we made their rental grouping election. Is this like a schedule or an addendum, like a Schedule E that you apply to your tax return? Is that what this rental grouping election is? Yes. Yeah. It's just it's a it's a statement on your tax return that'll be on like page fifty eight of your PDF, or whatever okay. however many pages you have. <laughs> it doesn't. So it would be nice. It's really interesting. That's a great point because I think there's a few things that Schedule E, which is where we put our rental activity in general, I think it needs to be improved. The first one is. If you own a single member LLC, I think you should be you should put that on your Schedule E so it doesn't confuse the IRS. Because if you own a single member LLC, the 1099s are going into that LLC's federal ID number and name, and there could be a matching issue with getting that on you know your tax return. But that's another episode, I guess. Um, right. The other thing is, I think you should check a box to say I am a real estate professional. Like as a pre- prepare. We will check a box in our software to say this person's a real estate professional and allow these losses, but there's nowhere on the tax return that says I check this box that I'm a real estate professional. And then the same with this election. This election is not necessarily attached to each property or Schedule E. It's just attached to your tax return. So um, in practice, we check a box in our software to make sure it gets transmitted to the IRS. Right. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. 
Good stuff. Okay, so we talked about five tax elections that real estate investors should or maybe must know about. Anything you want to close with in regards to these different elections and who really should be looking mm -hmm. into them or any other comment? Right. Well, I would say you know, really it comes down to your situation or tax planning. And sometimes, um, you know, if you have a, pro you know, with, with that first election we talked about, it, um, I should have added that uh, if it's a triple net lease, you're not going to qualify. So sometimes we have clients that are, let's say they own a commercial, a C corp and are paying rent, fair market value rent, of course, to themselves for a commercial building. If you want to take advantage of that 199 deduction, it can't be a triple net lease. You might want to restructure yourself so that you're paying some, you know, taking advantage. I'll just leave it there. Um, right. And, but no, I mean, it's a facts and circumstances thing. Take a look at your tax return. If you feel like you're, there's some deductions that you're not taking and, and or you're not using, implementing a tax strategy, definitely talk to a CPA or tax professional about your, uh, your situation. And one more thing, it's not always the best move to take every deduction you can year one. Um, there are times where it's better to to hold mm. that on, hold on to that. Right, yeah, well, that's where your tax professional comes in to figure out if it's worth pushing those deductions into higher tax years for you so you have a lower in tax impact in those future years. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's just a conversation that you have with your tax professional. Good stuff, Chris. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. Tell our listeners how they can find you and get more information about what you guys do. Right, well, uh, again, thank you very much for having me on the show. If you would like, I'm happy to provide you with uh, some initial initial call, consultation, guide you in the right direction. Um, you could put that inquiry at realestatecpa.guru, realestatecpa.guru, or um, we have a professional Facebook page. So you just go to facebook.com backslash your real estate CPA. Um, on the Facebook page, you don't have to put any information. We have links to some really good resources, for, uh, a whole education, educational series where we dive into all these subjects with quick videos uh, that provide just a lot of great content. Awesome. Good stuff, Chris. Well, this has been very valuable information. I know it's worth a lot because if you can lower your tax impact, it means more dollars in your pocket. So people have questions, they can reach out to you. So again, Chris, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure and have a great rest of the day. Thank, Thank you. you. And for everybody listening, if you haven't subscribed to the show, remember to click the subscribe button, be a, a regular listener, help us spread the word, visit us on iTunes and leave us a rating and review. I read those reviews and I really appreciate it. If you have a question about real estate investing and finance, just shoot those over to us. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening. And we will all see you upon our next episode. Are you on track to achieve your financial goals? Income-producing real estate is the most historically proven way to accumulate wealth and has created more financial freedom than any other means. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best turnkey cash flow rental properties. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly income. Get your free strategy session with our knowledgeable investment counselors at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.